So hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff here at the World Business Academy. I'm here with Ronaldo Brudico, our founder and president, and of course Benjamin Schwartz, our production intern, is also here. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit dedicated to elevating the consciousness of people in the business community and encouraging business leaders to use their power and influence to take greater responsibility for the communities and the environments that their work touches. We are recording the show on October 19th, 2018. Before we get going, I also want to invite our listeners to reach out to us at info at worldbusiness.org if you have any questions or comments about the show today, or if you have anything you'd like to discuss us, for us to discuss in the future. We would love to hear from you. As always, you can listen to us using the, uh, the, on the go using Apple Podcasts and Blog Talk Radio. Just search World Business Academy. All right, so Ronaldo, uh, we, we were talking earlier today about the lead story in The Economist this week. Yeah, I'd love to talk about it. By the way, first I want to thank Jet Thurman for contacting us. Uh, Jet, thank you for pointing out that people in other countries don't, it's not as easy for you to hear what I have to say when I go too fast. So I'm going to try and go slower. So if anybody notices I'm trying to sound slower, I am. And if I don't succeed, it's because I get carried away. <laughs> so apologies in advance, but thanks for bringing that to our attention, Jet, and to all of our listeners. We really like hearing from you, so please send in your comments, your questions, uh, your thoughts, and uh, we'd love to respond to it. We'd, we'd like to make this more of a, uh, of a dialogue so that we can hear from you and we can address exactly what's on your mind. With that in mind, for those of you who didn't notice it, the cover of The Economist magazine uh, this week was stunning on several fronts. And the cover is a big red line, and it's a guy looks like a rock climber climbing up to the top of this curve. He's at the very top, and the curve's going way down from there, and it says, the next recession, how bad will it be? And I urge you, even if you don't buy The Economist, at least look at the cover. Why? Two things going on in this cover that really validate why this show is important to you. It's important to you collectively, and it's important to you individually. What this cover says and what the story that's attached to it, in fact, there's a whole special supplement attached to it, is exactly what we said on the show two months ago. So we gave you a two-month warning on what was coming. Remember, in capital markets, having advance warning is the difference between losing and making money. And as we used to say at the Kellogg School of Business, uh, where we did a seminar for the Kellogg faculty and executive component, we, we, we did a seminar called Knowledge is Power, the holistic business model for success. So knowledge that something's coming before the economist figures it out is extraordinarily valuable. Now, what's also interesting about this front cover is not just that they call that there's a recession coming and that it's going to be a good size one. They're concerned it could be a whopper. I'm telling you for a fact it'll be a whopper. They identified one of the key things we identified two months ago on our show. Remember I quoted Lloyd Blankfein and Paul Tudor Jones? And I talked about the fact that those two gentlemen agreed with our perception here at the Academy that because the monetary muscle, the resilience of our international monetary system has been badly compromised. We can talk about that in some detail. I won't go in too deeply. I don't want to get wonky here. But because the monetary system is not in good functioning order at this time, and certainly not strong enough to play the role it did in ending the last recession, the severity of this recession, I'm quoting now Ronaldo 
but it's agreed to by Paul Tudor Jones and by Lloyd Blankfein, the chairman of Goldman Sachs. We all think that this recession is going to be far worse than anything we've come up against, with the possible exception of the last one, although it could be that bad or worse. So the cover of The Economist is saying correctly, mm, the recession's here. Two, it looks like it could be a bad one. And three, if it is a bad one, the monetary system is not in a position to really help resolve it. All those things are true. All those things are things we've covered on this show. One of the questions, if you haven't thought about it, you ought to ask is, gee, hey, Ronaldo, how come you've been talking about this recession for a year and you just got here? Number one, I'd like you to go back and listen to those old shows. And you know, you'll notice I said, I can't tell you when it's going to start because there's a lot of factors that could affect the start date. But I can tell you what it's going to look like when it gets here and I can tell you what's going to cause it. All those predictions have now turned out to be true. The reason the date has been pushed back is because we had a sugar high. The tax cuts that Trump put into place, which I warned everybody at the time before they went into place, just like I warned everybody about the two weeks before Citizens United, I warned people it could be the end of American democracy if, in fact, Citizens United went the wrong way at the Supreme Court, and it did. And I warned people in this show multiple times that when you pass a tax cut like that, which benefits the wealthy at the cost of everybody else, what it does is it creates an additional strain, a pressure cooker, if you will, for the economy. And what I've said, and, and, and what I want you to put two and two together with now is, I said the tax cut could create a sugar high. How does that look? Well, it looks like about, and I'm now quoting research that we did at Just Capital, approximately 9% of the tax cut went into either employee wages, meaning non-executive employee wages, or something useful in manufacturing like new construction. 81% went to stock buybacks, share owners, and executive compensation. So that's the sugar high. And everybody knew who was part of that charade that that's exactly what they were doing. They were reallocating wealth from the middle class and the poor to the wealthy. So, for example, in the year 2017, we now know that 82% of the total wealth generated in the world, 82% in 2017 went to the top 1%. That, to me, is not only consistent with past performance, but unbelievably scary. Here's another number, just to show you how bad it's got. It, 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 it's, just, it's a longer time frame, but it really underscores the same phenomenon. In the period from 1973 to 2013, so a period of 40 years, that's a real long period of time to look at economic data, our wages only went up 9%, which is not a lot, because our productivity in the same period was measured at 74% increase. So when you have a 74% increase in productivity, you should have something comparable in wage growth. The way you can raise wages, the average living standard for a human in a particular society, is by productivity gains. If you try to raise it with sugar, like a tax cut that isn't real, what you do is you create debt, very high levels of debt. I'm going to come back to that because it's now a major drag for the economy. So if it had been 50, 60% in wage growth, what it would say is that you know, 50% of the benefit of that increase in productivity went to labor, which it should. Some percentage of that went to management, which it should. And some of it went to uh, capital and capital markets. Great. That means we're sharing the wealth. This statistic, 9% wage stagnation over a 40-year period, that means that the little guy's been getting hurt for 40 years in a row, even as his productivity and his ability to create wealth for others was growing. Tragic. And I want to quote a really famous economist, because conservative economists 
constantly like to quote Adam Smith. And uh, he wrote two books, actually, uh, that are famous. And the most famous of the two was the second one, The Wealth of Nations. And what Adam Smith said, quite correctly so, and by the way, you know the name of the field or the discipline that Adam Smith was? There was no such thing as an economist back then. It was called moral philosophy. So Adam Smith was a practitioner of moral philosophy. And what he said in his book on Wealth of Nations was a lot of stuff about how you have to conduct the economy if you want it to actually rise for the benefit of all. One of his quotes, and I like this one because it applies directly to the idea of the wealthy getting wealthier at the expense of everyone else, quote, No society can surely be flourishing and happy, of which by far the greater part of the numbers are poor and miserable. Now, he wrote that really at the end of the feudal era. Feudal societies had ended about 100 years earlier. We were just coming through the Industrial Revolution. We were starting to ramp up. We were creating enormous productivity gains, and people were starting to have lives, the average person. Well, what we've done is we've reversed what Adam Smith learned, and we're, and we're back, recreating the feudal period. We're back in the, in the feudal, we're feudal back period. In, we're in a, we've got the peasants and the... Uh, yeah. The one percent, the aristocracy. The one percent is the aristocracy. In fact, the the closest analog to the United States in the year twenty eighteen would be the Confederacy in eighteen sixty two. Plantation economy. Plantation economy. We're back to plantation economy. So one percent at the top, that would be the white folks in the in the big house, are supported by a very few number of quote freemen. And what I mean by freemen is people who make decent salaries, a hundred thousand or more, who are literally going to be able to retire with dignity. Then there's the vast middle class, which is going to get wiped out, and there's everybody below it. So this small little 1% at the top of the southern plantation, they were wealthy, they had everything. Then you had a very small layer, much larger, but very small layer of white folks who were shopkeepers, who were merchants, who were um, had a variety of occupations. They were traders, like, for example, trade as in trade style. Um, the very famous movie, Gone with the Wind, Rhett Butler was basically a merchant mm-hmm. who was trading initially in cotton and eventually trading in guns. So Rhett Butler represented that class in the South below plantation owner. So he was not aristocracy, but he was allowed to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of money got made by that small little group there, but they were nowhere near as rich as the plantation owners because it was a Southern-based culture, was based on land ownership and slave ownership. And then you had massive amounts of people who were working like slaves Mm -hmm. and serfs, just like feudal society. And just to take it back to the tax cuts and the sugar high that comes out of that, I think there was another tax cut that got passed this week by the House. Probably won't go anywhere in the Senate. And at this point, with the rising debt rising in a, like close to a trillion dollars in this last year. Yeah. McConnell and other way, that's folks. That's the first. It, it, we've yeah. never had a year where the debt shot up by almost mm-hmm. a trillion dollars in one single year. It's tremendous. And you're going to see it shoot by one trillion next year, and it isn't going to take a breather on its way to one and a half trillion. And these are all the people who are calling for the, closing the, the deficits. We, we have well, to, that was phony. That was phony, that was exactly. And now they now what are they suggesting that they have to reevaluate and look at cutting? Medicare and Social Security. I was telling a joke, Christy, earlier in the day. It's like a, Trump has been saying, you know, the Dem- Democrats give you mobs and we give you jobs, which isn't true. We'll talk about jobs in a minute. But, but if you want to create a mob, if you really want to create a mob, the best way to create a mob is you get a bunch of angry old white people 
And the way you get people, old white people, angry is you tell them you're going to go after their Social Security. <laughs> and Absolutely. they vote. They really vote. And, and Medicare. I think, I think people are really concerned about insurance in this cycle as well. Yeah, but not as much as older people. Like, if you look at the voting demographics, the block that votes the least are millennials. The block that votes overwhelmingly the most is white old people. Now, all old people as a group definitely vote more than millennials. I mean, way, way, like two to three definitely. times. But if you get into the subset of white old people... Nothing gets them off the bench, gets them off the golf course, like threatening Social Security or Medicare. So those people are not going to let it happen. Mitch McConnell's got to know that. At the same time, Mitch McConnell knows who he works for. And what he delivered, what Trump delivered, actually what McConnell delivered that Trump instigated, was massive shareholder buybacks. So who does Mitch McConnell think that he works for? Mitch McConnell works for the entitled money class. Okay. That's, that no makes question. sense. And he knows that. He, and he likes being one of them. Remember, he married a very rich Asian woman. That's like, feels real good to him to be rich. So he doesn't have any sense of what it's like not to be rich anymore and not to be powerful. And to him, for him to brag that the, the ultimate peak in his career was blocking a judge who was perfectly capable of sitting in the Supreme Court, blocking him for an entire year so that they could then stick Kavanaugh in, who doesn't deserve to be on the high court in the land. His, his, he called it his peak accomplishment mm -hmm. was when he was able to block... Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland. But they actually brought Gorsuch in first. Right, but they, but, but they blocked Merrick Garland. He called that his peak accomplishment because I think he felt that getting Gorsuch in was relatively easy. Now, the second biggest accomplishment is that he got Kavanaugh in. Mm -hmm. And so he blocked Merrick Garland and he got Kavanaugh in. That does to the court system what Trump had already done to the FBI, hollow it out. That is what the Trump administration has done to counterintelligence, hollow it out. Particularly, he's gotten rid of all the Russian experts, most of them. It takes what, he, what Trump did to the CIA, which is to hollow out and to, and to ruin its influence or to defang it, if you will. It's like what Trump did to our overseas reputation with our allies, friends, and frankly, even our enemies, which is we're a laughing stock. And last but not least, it left no institution in place that could provide a break, a B-R-A-K-E, a break on this snowball going downhill called the economy. Yeah. So McConnell, and I'm going to put with him anybody else who was craven enough to want that tax money at the risk of what it would cost the American public, thinking they would get away with it. To a certain extent, it is true, because if you're rich enough, and uh, uh, the example I would give is the... CEO of, of Sears, which now just went bankrupt this, this week. He did, yeah. Um, Eddie, who runs Sears, uh, was, a, was a golden child in Wall Street for many years and had the, his who's who's of investors, and he ended up being worth uh, $2.5 billion, and now he's down to about $1.1 although he's going to come out of the Sears thing really well because he kept securing the real estate for himself, so he's going to end up just fine. But what he did... Is he I'm did, so relieved, by the way. I was yeah. really worried about that guy. <laughs> yeah. But what he learned and what his investors all learned the hard way, because they all lost every nickel in Sears stock, what they learned was there's only so much abuse you can put on any system, whether it's the economy as a whole, macro level, or the, um, the economy as a micro, a company, Kmart, Sears. There's only so much abuse it can take before it cracks, it breaks. The old adage, the last straw that breaks the camel's mm -hmm. back. So we are now at a situation where McConnell, because of greed, and you know when you're greedy, you can't really see clearly. 
it, put, it, it blocks your, your vision. And I would say that uh, the, the bulk of senior business leadership, very, very greedy. Wall Street, very, very greedy. The cohort of people who provided unlimited funding to Trump and his various criminal enterprises, very, very greedy. What they, what they haven't realized is that greed is actually going to be deadly to them too. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the analogy I've used for years, and it was the chapter heading in my book in 2007, 11 years ago, Freedom from East Doyle. Uh, in the first chapter, I call this. Uh, I have this heading called "Titanic Miscalculation," and you know, if you think you've got the owner's suite of the biggest yacht in the world, and so you've got, there's, it doesn't get any better than the owner's suite and the biggest yacht in the world. You think you're on top of it, and you don't care what the heck happens down in the steerage compartment because those are just poor people. And what do you care? They let them let them eat cake, as was famously reported by the former Queen of France who lost her head. If that yacht, if this giant mega yacht you own has the name painted on the hull, Titanic, it doesn't matter how rich you are. No. That boat's going down, and that's the U.S. economy. Now, what can we do about it is something we're going to get to at the end of the show. What I want everybody to realize in today's show is if you thought you needed to vote because you had some political reason, you wanted to turn around the the destruction of our public education system by the likes of Betsy DeVos and others. If you wanted to put some kind of a check on the Trump administration so that people would start keeping track of all the ways he's looting the U.S. economy and, and enriching himself and all the ways he's committed treason with the Russians and all the ways he's colluded to obstruct justice and all the ways he's basically sheltered the illegal activity of at least three of his cabinet secretaries, and I would say probably four. And by the, the three clearly are Zinke, Pruitt, and... Um, Wilbur Ross, those three, and I believe there are two others in there that probably have their fingers in the in, in the wrong pie, and Betsy DeVos is probably one of them. Anyway, Ben Carson keeps getting called out. Yeah, too. you know what? He's—I don't think he's smart enough to be that much of a criminal. <laughs> he's probably a he's smart in over doctor. His head. He's just way yeah. over his head. Yeah. He, he doesn't know how to steal. Trump knows how to steal, <laughs> and Wilbur Ross certainly does, and 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 certainly Pruitt did, and certainly Zinke does. Anyway. The point I want to make for today is, if you were upset, and again, this show is not about politics, except as politics affects the economy. If you were upset, and that was, or Kavanaugh, or the Me Too movement, or any one of a dozen other things that bother you, or Gorsuch, or any of these things, or all of them, if that's what you thought was motivating you to get out and vote, great, good motives. However, there's nothing that should motivate you more than the fact that your life, your economic life depends on it. Yeah. If this blue wave does not happen, and I'm going to comment on The Economist in a second regarding that, if the blue wave doesn't happen, meaning if the House doesn't go Democratic, that is the end. Mm-hmm. Because the recession that's already starting, and how do you know it's starting? Sales of automobiles, down 7%. Mm-hmm. Uh, consumer sales, only up one-tenth of 1% in each of August or September. That's about a quarter of what everybody expected. Uh, new hires, theoretically, were 134,000 last month. You need about 150,000 to break even. And I don't think there necessarily was 134,000. We'll find out when the restatement comes out. So all of these things are already going to We've peaked out in the housing market, as everybody knows. Tariffs are starting to hurt very badly the U.S. business. So all of these things together are not the real issue. The real issue is we no longer have a slow-moving fascist coup. We have one that's in full motion. And so to me, we have to take back America Mm -hmm. because we are going to be up to our eyeballs in challenges to fix this economy. And none of the institutions that we used last time are going to be available to us, including the Fed. 
are certainly not available to us in the same way we used to. Well, because they're already sort of stretched to yeah. the to the maximum so, of what they yeah. are able to do. Yeah. So the Economist incorrectly reported that toxic politics in January could be the reason why the recession gets worse, and that's absolutely false, false, false. The recession is going to be horrible if the blue wave occurs and we, res- we, we can put checks and balances back as the Constitution envisioned. There's a chance as a society we'll get our act together Mm-hmm. to rebuild our economy. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to do it one brick at a time because the Fed's not going to be able to do it with silver bolts. And we're not going to do it as the reserve currency in the planet anymore. So uh, last week, uh, which we expected on this show, India announced that it was going to start buying oil. And they're going to buy it from Iran, and they're going to pay for it in rupees, meaning a further deterioration of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency because of a political policy unnecessary this country created which was to try and ban people from buying Iranian oil because Trump wanted to destroy the Iran deal, which nobody can understand. Even Republicans don't understand why he wants to do that. And in the process of doing that, he's now pushed the U.S. off of being the world's reserve currency. And as I think I've indicated before, and I would love to say it again, if you're not the reserve currency, you have to pay your own bills. You can't just print money. With $21 trillion in debt and with this debt service escalating, and it will escalate higher because A, the policy, the fiscal policies of the Trump administration have created more debt, i.e. they're spending more and they're collecting less in taxes dramatically. They said a billion one, billion five last year, it's going to be over two. But the real reason isn't that. The reason is because when you stop being the reserve currency and as interest rates go up, the debt service goes up to the point where it will not be long. It's a matter of a couple of years. We will be paying more in interest on the federal debt than we will be for the military. It's not that far away. And that's a huge statement for a country with by far the largest military in the world. Yeah. Okay. So what's really going on is when you're not the reserve currency, you can't print money and pay your debts. You have to then pay them down the old-fashioned way. You have to earn the money back. And if we don't take control of our country, we can't begin to rebuild our economy. Now, do I think we're capable of rebuilding our economy? Absolutely. Do I think there's a hundred things we could do to create a new golden age of economic well-being that would lift everybody, including the least fortunate among us. Economically up the ladder, yes. Could we unleash massive amounts of productivity? Absolutely. Could we create wealth beyond people's imagination? Absolutely. But you can't do that if your country's out of control. And this one is out of control. And also it's being controlled by people who are very self-interested. And they don't have the idea that for the greater good. Well, yeah, because see, right now, if you were put on a desert island, right? You were put on a desert island, and you all had to get along to survive. There's this TV show called Survivor, right? That's what they do. They get, mm-hmm. they, they, everybody on one team has to work together to survive. You can do a lot if you actually pull together as a team. You cannot survive if one small part of the team, one or two percent of the team, goes, let's figure out how we can get a corner of the coconut market, screw everybody else, and let them, let them eat sand. And that's what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. So what happens is these divisions in society that Trump has created for the purpose of political, gaining political power, which is exactly what Hitler did in 1936. And I hope somebody calls in and challenges me on this Hitler analogy, because I am absolutely, absolutely comfortable saying there's more in common with Adolf Hitler and, and Donald Trump than you can imagine. Both got elected with 36% of the vote. 
both of them ended up using their political power to get rid of and to vilify and get rid of the press first and then the opposite party. One of them, Adolf Hitler, went on to become Fuhrer for life after he burned the Reichstag. I don't know what Donald Trump's going to pull to get his Reichstag moment, but I swear it's coming. And if the Democrats don't take over the House, there will be a Reichstag moment. Another parallel, by the way, is that it was a conservative group that got Hitler in, mm -hmm. and they thought they could control him, and they were wrong. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and look at what happened. People in the Republican Party thought they could control Trump, and there isn't any... To quote the former head of the Republican Party, John Boehner, there is no Republican Party anymore. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the party of Trump. So he has destroyed the Republican Party. They don't control him. He controls them. Look at what he's been doing. And if you want to see a pathetic example of the way he's, he's actually been a brilliant puppeteer, look at Lindsey Graham. What a dramatic, you know, I mean, what a dramatic tragedy. Okay. I mean, his reputation is forever lost. Well, I don't want to get deeper into the politics because that's not where I'm going. Where I'm going is we must get the political situation back under control or we will perish. And we've got a recession. It's starting right now. Here it comes. It's going to be worse than we can imagine because the monetary system is not in place to help put it away. And if we are not together, meaning if we don't root out the causes of dissension and, and vilification happening in this country, if we don't do that, we won't be able to recreate the economy to get ourselves out of this mess. And by the way, I think we're talking years to get out of this one, not months, no. years. Yeah. And um, we're going to do a show on November 9th because depending on what happens on November 6th, um, it'll go, we'll be doing one of two kinds of shows. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to, to revisit that. And the last thing I want to make is a comment about why it matters. I said it matters because you're fighting for your economic survival, and you are. Why it matters that you listen to this show is because things are going to keep changing faster and faster and faster. And even though advice you got on this show months ago is still good advice, get out of the market. Hope you did by now because the market dropped from, it was up 16% until last week. Now it's only up 11% since we started telling people to get out. And that's going to go away soon. So you should, you should be out of the market by now. But more importantly, we told you to start looking at how to stay liquid. We told you about paying off credit card debt. A lot of basic advice that's good financial advice for the average person. We're going to keep doing that as time goes on. But what used to be a very safe way to protect yourself in one of these, i.e. buy U.S. government bonds, may not be that safe anymore. And so we really have to look at and listen to the show because week by week, month by month, this thing is going to change very rapidly now. Mm -hmm. And those who are really well informed and fleet of foot have got the best chance, I'm not saying a certainty, but the best chance of coming through this intact. We're going over Niagara Falls and we're in a barrel. Let's live through the experience. I like that idea of living through this experience. Well, a couple things that you mentioned Niagara Falls. And uh, another thing that happened this last week was the UN uh, report on climate change uh, was released. And it's quite dire in, in its predictions. Well, actually, it's, it's not. It's woefully optimistic. Okay. Well, woefully the, the optimism... They think we've got, what, till 19... <laughs> No, until 2045. 12 years to change uh, our business as usual. Yeah, but they think we got till 20, listen, listen they got to, we got till 2045 before millions of people stop, start dying from, quote, natural disaster, close quote, related incidents. That's so ridiculous. We got a few million people that died this year. We had 86 million people who were refugees from, from primarily Africa. 
uh, that are fleeing for their lives because it's just too hot to survive mm -hmm. and there's no water in the subsphere. By the way, talk about an opportunity. Oh my God. If we decided to change the climate for the better, if we literally launched a off of fossil fuel onto renewable energy campaign, that alone would create enough wealth to end this recession and put us on a whole new trajectory. Absolutely. But that takes political will. And, and that's it takes what getting the people out of office who are basically stealing everything that's not nailed down and a few things that are nailed down. And who, who refuse to even read this report. As optimistic as it is, at least it, it gives you some... It, it stresses that we have to do something now. We don't have time to rest on our laurels yeah. because between now and 12 years from now, is what they're saying, it's going to be uh, irreversible even more. Or it's yeah, going to... By the way, anybody listening to this that wants to help we have several projects here at the Academy, including our Climate Change Division, which has been operating for about 11 years, uh, which would love to get any contributions you can send. Please, I think, is there a donation button on our website? There is, yeah. Yeah, go hit the donation button, www.worldbusiness.org, and, and help us fund the analysis of climate change, the, the real bad news, which is much worse than you heard last week, and what the solutions are to that. Again, remember, we, we're, we're believers in solutions. Mm -hmm. And there, and I constantly like to repeat, I've never heard of any problem in this history of this country, and I've never heard of a problem anywhere in the world that we can't fix with today's resources and technology if we choose to do so, if we have the will. And we don't have the will right now, but if we had the will to change climate change, we could. And the wealth we would create would be enormous. And by the way, let me just touch on that for a second. People need it. I think I've talked about this in prior shows. If you look at what happens every time the planet changes its fuel system, it unleashes enormous economic activity, huge wealth gains, huge productivity gains. For example, when it, we moved from wood to coal. coal. And even before that, when you move from windmills to wood, mm -hmm. when you move from uh, coal to initially whale blubber mm -hmm. and ultimately to oil, and then from oil to now natural gas and now, now we're going into renewables. So the amount of wealth you create when you do all that is just enormous. And it, it gets created in this country, which is kind of neat, because even though the windmills and the solar panels are mostly going to be made in other countries, they're going to be actually installed and operated here. Mm -hmm. And so it helps us, plus it lifts the, the income of all those other countries. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing you touched on in your question was the issue is insurance. Right. I was going to I was going to say that actually the insurance markets are going a little bit crazy. They've spent more in this last year than uh than it's the second highest annual figure ever actually. There's a report that came out from the Insurance the International Association of Insurance Supervisors and uh the economic costs for 2017 were about 340 billion dollars. Yeah. And I had this, I think you knew about this, I had this great series of conversations back about know, three or four years ago now with the head actuarial in the U.S. Actuarials are people who create the analysis that tells insurance companies what to charge in order to collect enough to pay for the disaster when it comes 10, 20 mm -hmm. years later. And I explained to this individual, very smart, I said, you know, you, you, you people in the insurance industry, you are going, you're going to get hit so hard and so blindsided that you think you've got enough room there to move and you're not going to have enough move because it's going to come faster and with more velocity than you are planning for. You're not looking at the acceleration of climate disaster. You're looking at climate disaster with a historical lens. 
Yeah. And that's what's starting to happen. Now, these figures, as bad as they are, this is There's nothing. nothing. And, nothing. No, and, and they're estimating that it'll continue to increase as these natural uh, disasters happen, which are largely, they found, were largely based on climate change issues. Of course they are. They the, have to be. The, the forest fires. Look, um, the city of Austin, Texas, the capital of Texas, is in risk. It's within two to three feet of going underwater right now. Austin, Texas? Yes, yes. <laughs> and and it's because of torrential rains just north northeast of the, north northwest of the city. Okay, why are those torrential rains happening? Because of climate change. How does it happen? As we've been explaining on the show many times. The hotter it gets, the more moisture goes up in the air. When the moisture goes up in the air, it's got to come down as rain. So when you have a collision of two fronts, you get this massive dump of water. So even if you've been going through a drought for six months, that one day, you're going to have a flood. And that's called flash flooding. Except flash flooding isn't flash flooding anymore. The new now normal is it's it's rain. (laughs) It's what rain does. And so Austin, Texas is sitting there uh, with their lake is sitting... It can't. It was 14 feet below overflow a day and a half ago. I think it creeped up a couple more feet in the last 24 hours. The rain stopped, so they've been va- rapidly dumping water out of it. They've got four sluice gates open, and they're really trying to get rid of the water because they see another rainstorm coming, which is supposed to hit today, I think. Okay. And so you're going to see way more of that. You're going to see a constant escalation of the peak of a climate issue, deluge, forest fire. Serious um, drought, okay, punctuated by the exact opposite in the same region shortly thereafter. So the periodicity of of these disruptions Mm -hmm. is getting closer together and the amplitude is getting further apart. And when that happens, it's a system out of control. So what what the insurance companies were doing, and, and this is the this is the flaw they have in the insurance. Insurance companies look at how much they lost in the press the last say 10, 20, 30 years. They go, okay, if that's going to hit us again, how soon is it going to hit us? Well, based on what's happened in the last 30 years, it's going to happen again in 10, 15 years. If we set the insurance rate at this, we'll collect enough money that by the time it hits, we'll make a profit and we'll be able to pay the damages off. That doesn't work and hasn't worked for at least five or 10 years now. Well, the flaw in that thinking is that the the future is going to be similar to the past, which is it's, it's not totally not. Totally. It's and and the the feedback loops are just exacerbating these issues that are continuing to, you know, it's getting hotter, it's getting wetter or drier. It's getting well, it's getting wetter know, and drier. Getting wetter and drier, depending on where you are in the world. No, in in, in the same place in the world. Okay, <laughs> oh, that's right. It's wetter <laughs> in some places and drier in the same places. Uh, okay, example. We had the worst forest fire season in California history. Based on the extended drought. Extended drought. And we had um, the biggest fire in the history of California here in Santa Barbara. And it only kept that record for about three weeks when an even bigger fire took off in Northern California. And we had a mudslide right thereafter from this massive deluge, Mm -hmm. which happened to punctuate the end of the drought. So in the same location, Santa Barbara, California, we had drought, 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 drought. Flood. Right. And now we're back in drought. And we'll continue to be back in drought until the next flood. Okay. But there won't be, you know, a, a, a chance to recover, uh, which is, gee, if we had five years of, quote, normal weather. There the is tree, no such thing as normal no such weather. And, and the trees would reestablish, and then we wouldn't have to worry about the hillside moving. That ain't going to happen. So what are they doing inside of Barbara Montecito? They're talking about building massive Swiss nets across the ravines to catch the boulders coming down. You know, we have friends who've lost their houses. One lady we knew lost her life. I mean, 
this was a serious crisis. Two, over $2 billion worth of real estate in Montecito alone is gone and will never come back. Mm -hmm. That city's going to lose probably 40% of its land area because it won't be safe to build on it again. And the rest of the city's hanging by a thread. Mm -hmm. You know, hoping to build some nets to keep the rocks away for a couple of years while they can regrow them and, and build what's called the brood bases. So, Which, by the way, we're talking about being wealthy, being in yeah. that top 1%. It doesn't, it doesn't help you in the face of climate change. It doesn't matter which zip code you live in. That's right. And that's what I meant by Titanic. Yeah. See, if you're in the owner suite, and, and if you were to look at zip codes in America, one of the wealthiest zip codes in America is Montecito, California. I mean, it's got to be up in the top 10. And so that's the 1%. Right. You can't really live in Montecito for another I don't think they let you drive your car down the street. No, that's just, Montecito's got a lot of nice people, yeah. and we're working yeah. very hard to help them, actually, with the yeah. Montecito 2.0 microgrid. Well, and unfortunately, there was, there was quite a few people in the Montecito area who lost everything, who didn't have many resources, and, and they're even worse off than the people who lost their homes. Yeah, who were insured who, properly. Who were insured yeah, properly. Yeah. But, but the tragedy as you were pointing out a minute ago, is even in that mm -hmm. demographic area, in one of the wealthiest zip codes in the world, it didn't protect them from the climate change. That's what I mean by a titanic miscalculation. And that's what I said in the book 12 years ago. If you're on that yacht, and you think it's your own private yacht even, you're still dead when the boat sinks. And that's what happened to Montecito. The boat sank. Mm -hmm. and, and we now have to concern ourselves with the question, what do we do as a global civilization because CO2 concentrations of 410 parts per million, which is what we're peaking at now, anywhere are 410 parts per million everywhere. And together what they're doing is there's so much, there's so much heat being created that it is warming the oceans and the amount of methane coming out is just massive and accelerating. Mm -hmm. So we call that the methane accelerator. And by the way, this, the report that the IPCC did release, this time for the first time, we only come out every two years, acknowledged that methane was a critical, if not the critical component of greenhouse gas. First time that's ever happened. We've been and, talking about it for 11 years. And, and I think that we shouldn't necessarily go into that on this show, but if people are really interested in to know more about the methane, methane accelerator, please write to us at info at worldbusiness.org, and we'll get you more information on yeah, that. Yeah, and, and thanks for saying that. Because, you know, we have some, like this new cartoon, we did, the four-minute cartoon we mm -hmm. did on microgrids, mm -hmm. because microgrids are the energy electrical system of the future. It's a cute little four-minute cartoon. And if you write in and say, gee, I'd like to know what is a microgrid and why should I care, in four minutes you'll know. And if you want to know more, there's a 20-minute video that you can ask us for that's already yeah. there too. Yeah. So there's lots of stuff we have that people probably don't know mm -hmm. and I want to make available to them. Yeah. So in talking about climate change, which is certainly a global yeah. situation, I think that talking about the recession, we can't really... Uh, for all of our weaknesses in the United States, I think that the rest of the world may even be worse off. Well, I think um, you, once once we uh, once we really look, go down that, um, as in every adverse social situation, the people who are the poorest always get the brunt of it the worst. So the places that will suffer the most are the places with the Lord. For example, Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries on earth. A third of that country will be permanent. Right now it's underwater about two months a year. It's going to be underwater year-round within another three, four years. Mm -hmm. Five outside. Where do those people go? They try to move into Pakistan. Where do they go? It's crazy. Well, I mean, even closer to home, I think we're seeing that with the migrant, cri the migrant crisis on the southern border. Well, yes and no. I think that's caused by political issues. I think Honduras, 
and, and other countries in Central and Latin America are actually um, countries with strongman leadership, uh, dictatorships, and they're killing a lot of people. Most people fleeing aren't fleeing because of climate, they're fleeing from their lives. Uh, they're also countries where the gangs are in more control than, than, than the civil society. But, but I want to go back to this thing about because I want to tie it back to this country. So the countries that will pay the price the fastest are those with the least resources. Okay? So you're not going to see the Marshall Islands in 15 years. It'll be gone. You're, you're not going to see, um, what's that great little uh, country uh, off the Indian Ocean? Uh, Seychelles. Forget it. Ain't going to exist. You're not going to see uh, Tuvalu in the Pacific Ocean. Well, even there's communities up in Alaska that are disappearing. That's correct. In fact, they're disappearing in part because of the permafrost melt. Because it's, they're melting away. Yeah, they're yeah. melting away, literally. And the ones that are left have a disrupted food system right. because so the caribou can't get there and, and, and the walrus are dying. Well, mm -hmm. the, 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 starting with the polar bears and now the seals are dying. And I don't know if you saw it, but last week there's this new threat because of the, up in Northern California there's some kind of infection that's killing walruses like crazy up there. No, I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's going on right now. So what happens is you get a destabilization of the natural systems that built up over millennia to protect us. So we didn't have to worry about certain kinds of mosquito-borne diseases in America because those kinds of mosquitoes couldn't come this far north. We do now. We didn't have to worry about uh, boreal, boreal uh, beetles boring into trees, and now they're destroying the, the forests of the United States. We we are going to have the major U.S. cities in severe jeopardy within less than 15 years. So when you're talking about New York City getting washed over with water because the battery's only a couple of feet above the ocean, that's what's coming. When you're talking about the fact that you won't be able to see the ocean by looking down if you live in Beijing. Because of the, the air quality. Because the ocean's going to be up. Oh, okay. Beijing is on the water. In fact, 75% of all the population of the planet is on cities by coasts. So if you go around the map of the United States and you go, gee, LA's in trouble. Oh my goodness, that's San Francisco's going to have a hiccup. Seattle's got a real problem. Um, you know, you go around, it's like a whole bunch of Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Miami is already drowning, right? On a clear day, sunshine, there's two feet of water in Miami. And their decision to, to raise the street two feet. What are these people Quite thinking? Quite short-sighted. It's Quite crazy. Short -sighted. It can't work. It can't, you can't beat the ocean with by ra we can raise the, the, the streets every couple of years. Yes, that's insane. And yet, the same state, Florida, elects a governor who who goes on TV and says, "Yeah, I'm so sorry about Michael Hurricane, but climate change isn't real." <laughs> now, here's a good thing I want to con contrast for you, California and Florida. So their governor's like, oh, what are we going to do, Jim? I'm so sorry. Set up more shelters and whatever. Well, what was me? And red Tide Rick, by the way. Red Tide Rick, right. Which, by the way, the red tide is clearly part of global warming. Absolutely. Right? And, and, and Michael is part of global warming, right? The way you get a Hurricane 5 like that, or almost a 5, to 2 mile an hour short of a 5, out of nowhere, rapid speed, is because of the, the temperature of the water in, in, in the Gulf of Mexico. Anyway, the point is that here's Rick Scott for his own political purpose. By the way, convicted felon, I might add. Right? You know he was convicted for being an insurance fraud. I did yes. not he know that. He engaged in insurance fraud. And he still got elected governor. However, putting that aside, he's been fighting climate change. And so he's done nothing to prepare his state no, or to help. He hasn't been fighting climate change. He's been fighting yeah, the he, fight against climate he, he change. He made it illegal to use the word climate change in, in state government. He, you got fired if you talked about it. So that's the Florida response. In California... The exact opposite. You got a governor and, and, and an assembly and a state uh, legislature 
uh, Senate and, and a congressional delegation that goes, oh my God, the state's burning up. Let's quick go get more money for stuff that can help us. So they just got the federal government, and this is something I'm going to give Salud Carbajal some credit for. He got him to give us 54 new helicopters. Why? Because 54 helicopters give you that much more ability to drop water on forest fires. Okay, And forest fires is our threat. And there wouldn't have been a Montecito mudslide if there hadn't been a forest fire to precede it. Right. So what California is trying to do is to respond the best they can with, okay, how can we prepare our citizens better? How can we do better civil defense? What kind of equipment can we put online? How do we organize for these challenges? That's smart. And we're a state of 40 million people, fifth largest economy in the world. Florida, it's like, hey, they're, they're whistling by the graveyard. And, you know, Red Tide Rick is, you know, I'll say it's Red Tide. The Red Tide is so pervasive now. Do you know what this the fishing industry on the Gulf Coast and now the Atlantic seaboard? It never occurred to the Atlantic it's side. It's strangling it. Strangling it's it. literally strangling it. What are these going to do to tourism? People don't like to walk on beaches with dead fish, and there's thousands yeah. of them. Yeah. Okay, so Florida, and, and then you, and you, and you put on top of that the insurance premium explosion in Florida because of all the climate change-related issues. Florida's toast. And instead of when this guy gets up and talks at a, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry for you people who Hurricane Michael. We couldn't see this coming. What, every time he gets in front of the camera, they go, Rick, you did this. Well, not You're only that, we've been saying it's coming for the last 10 years. And it's here. And it's here. In, in 2010, talking about another insane state uh, legislature, North Carolina, they outlawed the ability to use scientific forecasting in setting their building right. standards right. in 2010. And then they lost 51,000 more houses that had been built since then in yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, and, and by the way, just a visual image. You look at the um, Mexico Beach yeah. after the hurricane, and what you're going to see is one big, big place standing. So a guy and his three brothers built this house, and they decided they didn't want it to, they wanted to be there for the next couple of generations. So they built it right. They built it on concrete pylons that were 15, 18 feet in the air so the water could wash underneath at high tide. They built it with a, to withstand 200-mile-an-hour um, wind so that the roof wouldn't blow off. They, uh, they built it to withstand, um, basically, climate change. Mm -hmm. And they sunk the pillars deep enough into the, into the dirt that it's not going anywhere. So you look at Mexico Beach today, that's what's standing. It's the only thing left. Everything else is gone. And I think they've invited FEMA to use it as their... They, as their they invited FEMA to use it as their headquarters, headquarters. for the repair. So... What it tells you, and you know, I, I proposed, uh, a, 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 I created a design for Puerto Rican uh, electrical system. Again, using microgrid as a basis, but I basically designed a freestanding housing unit that anybody could live in that would then never lose power, and how you could connect them together using underground electrical and uh, low amperage. Um, so I, I'm ready to rebuild Puerto Rico, so the, the power will never go out again, and no one's going to do it that way. They're going to rebuild Puerto Rico the same way they built the first time. And so it's coming down again. Again, it's short-sighted. It's, it's using uh, resources. I think the other day we were talking about when we did drop interest rates significantly, the money we should have been investing in, the things we should have been investing in at that point were with infrastructure, infrastructure uh, education, the housing situation. Yep. We did not do that. Nope. And we still have all those issues. We've never made those kinds of real investments in our in our country or our economy no no and we didn't make them and every year you don't it gets that much harder it gets to, that much worse to do yeah so that's the bad news the good news is had we redone them and not designed them for the future 
they would have come down. They would have anyway. come down anyway. Yeah. So yeah. So so it's but time it, to redesign for the future. Yeah, and to stop putting good money after bad. And, you, can't, and you can't afford. We can't afford to be this sloppy anymore. You no. know, we got so sloppy. We got so careless. Yeah. We thought, you know, we could just go to the party. We didn't care who was president. We didn't care who was running the Congress. Oh well, well I vote. It doesn't make a difference anyway. We have one of the lowest voting turnouts of any country in the world. Well, we have to change that. We have to get people out. And what we have to do is help people realize it's their life on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, this. I hate to be a Cassandra, but I got to tell you, it's what's coming is is ugly already. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I heard a statistic. Over 50% of the American population is one paycheck check from homeless. Meaning, if you couldn't get that next paycheck, or if you had a medical condition that would require you to spend all your paycheck on something that was medical, you could end up homeless, literally, with one paycheck. That means no yeah. savings. There's no savings. And this is one of the saddest things, actually, talking about Mexico Beach. A lot of those people... Who lost everything? They also don't have their jobs anymore because no. the whole town is gone, so they have no place to go to work. Yeah, and one of the things I saw was particularly hilarious. You know, the federal government, as you can see, the bureaucracy responds to whoever's in the executive branch. So even something like the EPA, which is founded on the principle of preserving public health, has been gutted. Right? I mean, it's now doing things that are harming human health. Well, same thing's true with housing. Same thing's true with the labor statistics, the people who report that. All. They all have to work for a boss, and what the boss wants is what the boss typically gets in the federal government. The tragedy of tragedies is that people were in the misbelief or the, the kind of the fantasy land that somehow this could all be all screwed up and it was still going to be happy times. Mm-hmm. There'd still be plenty of money for what we needed to do as individuals, which is not true. I, I just did a, a strategic review for Just Capital, and one of the salient points I made in it that I think is really key to this to the just capital mission is that if you believe that the business community, and I've talked about this in the show before, if you believe the business community can operate successfully somehow distinct and apart from the society within which it operates, you're wrong. You can get away with it for a while because the nature of the economy is like the nature of uh, Newton's law of motion. A body in motion remains in motion until brought to rest. So you have a momentum that came out of eight years of an economic recovery from the Barack Obama period, mm-hmm. which was a really good economic, second best economic period the country's had many, many decades, other than Clinton, which was the best. And um, that's not to say I agree with all of Clinton's policies. I don't. And I sure as heck don't agree with all of Obama's policies. And I do hold Obama personally responsible for the mess we're in right now. That's what happened on his watch. Uh, but putting that aside, I, I only say that because I want people to know I really don't make these comments from a political point of view because I am really down on what Obama did in, in, in many ways, and I'm also grateful for what he did. But the end of the day is it, you cannot have an economy operate separate from society it's in because the fundamentals will eventually collide. And so thinking you can have a political chaos like we've had, thinking it's okay to let this divisive politics that's causing us to, to basically refight the Civil War, and that somehow it wouldn't affect the economy? No. It affected it from the get-go when Trump first started. The problem is, A, or the advantage was we had a great momentum built up from eight years of recovery under Obama. And B, most importantly, it takes time to screw up an economy that's going as well as our big economy was. And C, and this is the ultimate one, the economy fundamentals absolutely shift over time as you change the basis on which those fundamentals occur. So if you have productivity gains and you're not giving money to the 
average wage earner, the wage earner can't spend that money, and therefore you don't have consumption. If you don't have consumption, it starts to cut back on production. If you don't have production, it can sort of cuts back on labor, and the, and, and, and the wheel and the spiral tightens. So that's where we are today. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important people go to the polls, get some checks and balances in, take the government back, and let's start focusing on how to fix our problems as a, as a unified society and get past this insane thing we walked into two years ago. Yeah, and avoid another depression, which is the if stupidest it's possible. It, and it, most gratuitous. Frankly, we may not be able to avoid a global depression right now. Mm. Um, we are certainly going to have a whopper of a global recession. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that we yeah. get our act together enough to stop a global depression. Yeah. So we're really close to being out of time. The one major topic that we really didn't talk about is trade and tariffs. Sure. And I don't know, I mean, I think that's sort of another factor in, in what's driving the recessionary forces. And, and those are all also self-inflected. The tariffs. The tariffs are self-inflected. Yeah, they're yeah. self-inflicted wounds. And, and, the, they are, and then the suppression of international trade that goes Ford along Motor with that. Ford Motor Company publicly reported that they've lost a billion dollars already. One company, one billion dollars. They're going to lay off probably 20,000 plus, maybe 25,000 people because of tariffs. Uh, you're starting to see, the, because of the weak consumption, you're starting to see cutbacks in other industries. Uh, that's going to accelerate. So that's going to cause unemployment to rise, which is further going to dent the, the consumption. We, as I said at the early part of the show, we grew one-tenth of one percent consumption in both of August and September. That's 25% of what we expected, of what economists expected, not what I expected. So the, these are real problems. These are real, real problems, not to be ignored. And and the new NAFTA, or as it's called, the Mexico-Canada, U.S. US and trade, whatever, whatever it is. jumble of letters USMC, they put together. USMCA. MCA. Yeah, it's like, it sounds like a, <laughs> a, a record I should be singing out. The YMCA. Right? Yeah. Uh, but, but, but when you talk about that um, new trade deal, which is basically not much different than NAFTA, no, it, all it does is it updates it with the TPP agreements that they already... Yeah. Did we cover soybeans, by the way? We didn't talk about soybeans. Okay. So soybeans are down in this last year by about 13, 12.5%, 13%. But they're down over 30% from Obama. Those are farmers in Iowa. Okay. Um, Trump last week said, well, we're going to sell ethanol 12 months of the year instead of nine, thinking somehow that would create more consumption of corn. It won't because ethanol's uneconomic, and he can't afford to subsidize it. So no one's going back into ethanol. That's crazy. So that's not going to suck up the corn. Uh, pork prices are down because the Chinese are buying it somewhere else. The Chinese can buy their beef from Argentina. They don't need to get that stuff from us. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if they were really upset with us, the Chinese, all they got to do is stop buying T-bills, and we'll go into collapse. Which they can't do either because they have too much invested in their savings in our T-bills. Mm -hmm. So what I see in the tariffs and trade issue is I see China will continue to grow at an enviable 6% plus. But for them, that's like half of what they're used that's to. That's slow and that's, slow. that's plotting. We'd love to have 6%. We're going to do 2.5%. And of that, 2.1% is going to be inflation. And next year, um, we're going to be in recession. So whatever gains we get at the beginning of 2019, as the recession starts to ramp up, we'll lose in the second half. And we could, it could be worse than that, obviously. I think um, Britain is toast, although I don't think Brexit's going to happen anymore. I think, uh, I think that um, now that everybody's sobering up over there and they realize there is no magic way to leave Europe, 
Uh, and if they tried, uh, there is no soft Brexit. There's no hard Brexit exit. It's Brexit. You break with Europe, you are a tiny little island that nobody cares about because you're no longer able to get my goods from London into uh, the continent. We've already seen a huge movement of investment banking off Canary Wharf over to Paris. About six shows ago, I said they're going to move. And I said, I don't know if they're going to go to Brussels or they're going to go to Paris, but the odds are they're going to go to one of two. They've now picked they Paris. They went to Paris. They went to Paris, which makes sense to me. And for, for a lot of reasons, I think better than Brussels. So uh, England, if it's lucky, will go sideways. When they know the full extent of the damage of Brexit, which they're going to have to report to the British people, the British people will go, oh, my God, we don't want that. And I think there'll be another a referendum. New referendum. And at that referendum, I expect the British people will come to their senses and say, wait a minute, we better stick with Europe. And if they don't, and by the way, I think, I think I was telling this the day in the car, if, uh, if they don't, Jeremy Grantham, who's the, he's the uh, Jer- Jeremy is, Corbyn. Corbyn, rather, is the... Um, the labor sector, the labor. He's the leader. head of the labor party. Yeah. And he was a big Brexiteer when he thought that was the right thing to say. He switched. Because now he realizes if he goes against Brexit, and Brexit's as big a disaster as it clearly is, then he will probably become the next prime minister. May will not survive this. Whether the Conservative Party will survive at the helm, I doubt. But certainly May won't survive it. And, uh, and, and she shouldn't. She's a lightweight, and she's in over her head. And the fact that she thought she could negotiate with Europe when she had no cards. Now, it's one thing if you got seven cards and the other guy's got seven cards and you're playing, you know, seven-card stud. you got a chance. But when you've got one card, they got seven cards, and your card's a blank card. Not quite the equal equal negotiation. Yeah. yeah. I do want to I want to come back to Canada, by the way. Canada, unfortunately, the old saying is if the US sneezes, Canada gets a cold, right? So Canada's so bound up with the US that its economy really needs this big partner to the south to to consume a lot of what they're strong on, which is raw material. And Canada quietly has been trying to build much more of an independent economy. It's not there yet. So it's still very dependent. And when the U.S. economy goes down, Canada will follow. But every country in the world is going to follow. So that's not unusual. What I think is worth noting is that Canada is the second country in the, in the world to technically legalize marijuana. The third country, if you include Portugal, which didn't really legalize but decriminalized. So Portugal has no restrictions for personal use or even personal growing consumption of any drug and has the lowest drug problem of anybody in Europe, by the way, as a result, and spends no money on its police force arresting people and none of its judges putting them through trial. They actually put the money, and it's a smaller amount, it's a fraction of what they used to spend, into uh, rehab. So mm-hmm. Which is, that's a good investment. Great investment, works, it's been going on for 10 years, the evidence is overwhelming, it's like, it makes sense. But if you take Portugal out of the equation, and you just look at the countries that have legalized, which would be Uruguay and Canada now, um, that's going to create, in a country like Canada, probably an extra 10% GDP growth. In other words, not 10 whole points. If they were going to grow at uh, uh, 3% last year, that'll put them up to 2.3, 2.4. In other words, it's, it's that big a boost. And uh, in, in a small country like Canada, remember, Canada's got fewer people in California, quite a bit fewer, across a massive land mass. So when you add a couple of billion dollars worth of tax revenue, which they'll get at least a couple of billion out of this, that's a big That's number. a big jump. Big, big jump. And, 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 and not to mention the fact that their population will be happier. <laughs> Joke. Uh, <laughs> although it may be true. So I wanted to comment on it because... Stress relief, yeah, at least. Yeah, stress relief. They'll, 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 they'll deal with this recession better than the rest Much of us. Much better than the rest of us. They'll have, they'll have a way to let go of the stress. No, the reason I'm mentioning it is because, and I, I think you know, I've been friends for many years with um, Vincente Fox, the former president of Mexico, and 
he and I have talked since before he was elected, when he was still running Coca-Cola Mexico, about how critical it was for the Mexican government to get the American company to legalize drugs, specifically marijuana. Because, and he did. And he, he did it privately uh, before he got elected president. As president, he tells me he met several times with the U.S. presidents trying to get them to understand why this was so important. And he's been very vocal publicly since leaving office in Mexico. And the reason it's so critical and why I'm so grateful for what Canada's done and for, I think it's, uh, what are we, 16, 19 states, something like that in the U.S. now have basically decriminalized. I, I don't have those numbers, but it's, it's 10, 10 states. 10 states have decriminalized, and another probably 10, 13 have medical. Two more? 20. 20. 20 states, I think. 20 states have Medical. Medical, on top of the 10 legalized. So it's 30. Amazing. Thanks, Benjamin. So... Benjamin's giving us high signs for the booth here. <laughs> so that's an amazing statistic, right? Because what it's doing, together with what Canada is now doing, is it's reducing the demand side of the narco traffic. That's what's got to stop. And then the effects in Mexico. So the effects in Mexico is that all that illegal money is not flooding down there. Now, it, we get to tax it. Colorado's having a field day, right? So is Washington State, now Canada. And, and Cal California is not far behind. California's very close yeah. behind, soon to happen. I mean, it's starting now. So when you reduce the demand for drugs, and, and, and what you're going to see is the narcos get, will now probably try to push harder to get more heroin out there to push more cocaine, methamphetamines. But that only works so well because if somebody's already stoned for very cheap on marijuana, it's hard to get them to go do heroin. Okay, so what happens is you reduce the total demand. And by the way, that's what they found out in Portugal. I'm just quoting history here. I'm not quoting, you know, theory. So what happens is all that illegal, those billions of dollars, don't flood down to Mexico. And that means there's not enough money to keep the narco armies intact. Plus, they then don't have all the millions they need to buy illegal weapons from the U.S., which they buy like they're in a trade bazaar, right? And so we... Use their drugs. We pay them all this illegal money so they don't have to pay any tax on it. Then they turn around and buy our, our weapons, and they use them to kill each other with. And then they import gangs or support gangs here in the U.S. So all of that gets unwound when you legalize drugs. And the tax revenues are fabulous. And unlike a sugar high where you reduce taxes for the wealthy and get no benefit, this increases taxes, and it creates a huge social benefit. So... So, can't, I can't not comment on that. So that little punk kid running Canada is doing pretty good then. Listen, please, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> I think Justin Trudeau is doing a great job. And for a young guy who was born into a political family. Even. You should wrap it up, I guess. So just to remind people. Well, I, I want to do one statistic. Okay. Here's the wrap. So we, we both observed this before the show, and I want to share with people. Two-thirds of Wall Street money is right now going to Democratic candidates. Yeah, okay. and it's unprecedented. Unprecedented. It's and not just Wall Street money. All donations, no, no, two-thirds two of, 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 of Wall Street, a majority of total giving. And when you multiply that by the fact that the Democrats have small donor base primarily and the Republicans have PAC money, that's a, a sea change. And what is it telling you? It's telling you even the smart money on Wall Street says we've got to stabilize. They, it, otherwise, we're going we're gonna to sink the ship. Even they know too much greed is too much of a good thing. And so I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. I urge everybody, write in, call in, give us the questions you have that are most burning to you, that you want dealt with. We can come through this, but we don't unless we choose to. It takes volition. It takes will. So that's where I would wrap up is please care enough to get engaged, 
Take our free subscription to Solutions News, to, to, to the Optimist Daily. Daily. Write info at worldbusiness.org. If you want to donate, that'd be great. But if you nothing else, just listen to the podcast, share it with your friends, and by all means, take Optimist Daily. That sounds good. Great. Well, thanks so much, Ronaldo. Thank you, Benjamin. Uh, that's, that's Thank it you, for Christy. Today. And we'll be back on, uh, uh, we'll record again on November 9th. Great. See what happens. Thanks, everyone.